We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Once again, kids are at home due to an education strike instead of in school. It's like the 1970s, 1980s, 90s, and 2000s all over again. Woo-hoo! Imagine if we spent this kind of time on our own healthcare system. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> Do you remember the gong show? I hear it's coming back. Uh, or has it come back and failed again and then left again? Oh, man. What a gong show. What is happening to the world? The extremists are running the house. Oh, my goodness. Good afternoon. It is 311. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, the kids are all here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. So uh, let me get this straight. <clears throat> so uh, before the weekend, Lecce said, uh, please remove the strike legislation and the stuff on Friday, or we're going to put through the legislation. No, we're not going to do that. And then we go on strike on uh, the Friday. And then uh, today, Monday, uh, the government comes back and says, uh, we'll remove the legislation if you don't strike. Okay. All right. That's that's a win. We've won. It's victory. <laughs> Is that not the same thing? Oh, my goodness. Uh, if you're tired of playing this silly game with these silly people on both sides of this, and this is nothing about strikes and unions and collective bargaining and where they've come and where they've gone. Uh, this has gone well beyond that. I think we should lock all of these people in a room, a, a, a soundproof room, close the door with a mediator. Each has got their equal parts. Each has got equal representation. Each They can even bring in a tickle trunk full of costumes if they want. But I don't want to hear about it. Just like the police, the fire, the whatever, whatever, whatever. Let's declare them an essential service or whatever it is so we don't have to go. You name me another industry where we have to go through this. We should be talking about health care like this. Instead, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Here we go again. Here we go again. And, 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 and we haven't even gotten anywhere yet. All they, they've done now is that they're back to where they were on Thursday. <laughs> and that is they're talking again. So uh, it just amazes me how um, it, the whole process works. I think it's just, and, and I'm not making fun of the collective bargaining process for uh, the private sector and for unions. I think what the unions and the car companies, the auto industries, the governments, all levels of government have done in the auto industry is just unbelievable. It, it's very, very heartening to see how far they've come and what they've done. This is just a circus. This is just people standing up in costumes and waka, 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 and basically saying the same thing on Thursday as they are on Monday. But now because it's a different person that said it, it means something different. Like, oh, my goodness. I don't know how they have the patience for this. Do they get paid to do this? Like, what a gig. So, again, I, I don't know how we do it. And I got a pile of clips here. And um, 
I'm not sure I'm even going to get to them. Um, but there's got to be a way to get to, for example, where we just got without all of the shenanigans. Because you name me another industry where we do this dance. Not for the firefighters, certainly not for our healthcare workers. We've talked more about education in the last week than we've talked about the healthcare system through the global pandemic. It's all falling on deaf ears because we keep going through this. I respect it. I understand it. But you know what? Ontarians are tired of being held hostage. It's not the private sector. It's a public sector monopoly where the children, the parents have no choice. And that's why they have the power they do. So let's treat them the same way we do our health care workers. Think about that. So let's work on uh, subsidizing and putting money to where we need to put it. And let's worry and let's try to come up with different ways of going through the exercise that we're going through now. The same way we do for most industries. Because again, they've wiped the slate clean, but I think they both look pretty silly. They really do. And no one's got the patience for this. So get it done or come up with a different way of doing it, just like they have in every other single industry, whether it's private or the public sector. Because what we're going through and what we've been going through for the last 40 to 50 years, every year or so, is unacceptable. Think if we'd paid that much attention to housing. Think if we'd paid that much attention to health care. The solutions we may have found. I'm looking through uh, the news the other day, and, I, and I, I see the people that have got the Order of Canada. And there's all sorts of prominent people, like the head of Cirque du Soleil, uh, former CTV news anchor, Lisa Laflamme. And then there's Ron Fellows, a Canadian racing driving legend, right there. And I'm, I'm, I can't believe that. That is absolutely fabulous. So let's find out the story behind uh, how you get to drive really, really fast and then get the Order of Canada. Ron Fellows with us, co-owner of Canadian Tire Motorsports Park and, of course, a legendary Canadian race driver with us now. Ron, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well. Thank you, Scott. So uh, how, did, how did this even come about? How did you find out about this? Uh, he... <clears throat> It was um, it was kind of funny. I was out of my school in Nevada uh, at, the, at the Corvette School, and my phone rang. This was December, early December, twenty nineteen, and um, uh, very early West Coast time. My phone rings, and it wakes me up, and I look, and it's a six one three area code. And oh, okay, we have we have family in Eastern Ontario. I answer it, mm-hmm. and it's a gentleman from the, the uh, Governor General's office basically telling me that I've been uh, uh, selected and will be invested into the Order of Canada. Oh, man. And I sort of stop, and I said, uh, okay, okay, who is this really? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> But uh, no, it was it had, no, no, Mr. Fellows. It's, it's uh, you know, I'm so and so from the Governor General's office. Yeah, no, so so it was um, obviously a huge honor. It was, I know, I believe a number of uh, a number of journalists were responsible for automotive journalists um, um, and maybe one or two other. 
prominent uh, media members uh, were involved in the, the application or nomination, and uh, yeah. obviously uh, a massive honor. And the the uh, ceremony last Thursday was uh, fantastic to be you know to be um, with with ingre- incredible company, and also have. Uh, uh, my wife and, and two of our three three uh, kids were able to make it, and um, yeah, no, it was was uh, was incredible. And uh, the governor general Mary Simon, she's uh, absolutely terrific, and and uh, spent spent a lot of time with uh, after the after the ceremony with uh, with all of the um, all of the the, the new members. Uh, in a reception post event, so it's yeah, very very cool. Well, I forgot to say this. Congratulations! Uh, so, <laughs> did, did you did you know did you know about any of this until that person no. had called from the governor's general a uh, governor general's office? No idea. And so you said back in 2019. So obviously, due to the pandemic, this has taken this long for this to happen. Is that why you're doing it now? Yeah, because of COVID, they typically, apparently, they do, um, and I don't, I don't know the, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure of the numbers, but this, this, um, this, the, it, the Order of Canada um, began in '67, and and I don't know, I think it's something, I don't know how many, how many times a year they. I, Sorry, they, they typically, from what I understand, they do this they do the ceremony twice a year, but because of COVID, they were yeah. they had a lot of catching up to do, so um, they were doing it uh, quite frequently to try to catch up. But I, but I believe that's the typically when they when they announced uh, um, uh, members to the order or, or become invested. In the Order of Canada, it's uh, they do ceremonies, I think, twice a year. So are you more nervous at this than you are before the drop of a green flag? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, because you don't I have no idea what to, at least, at least, at least uh, jumping in a race car, I have some idea of what to expect, but you have no idea. <laughs> but it, it's... Uh, yeah, no, you, you know the, the the ceremony is very very cool. They they you you come up the you know you go to the front of the when your name is called you go to the front of the room and there's yeah. media there as well as uh, uh, family and and uh, the rest of the group is being invested and you you know greet the uh, governor general and then and then they read a little bit about you and then. Uh, Governor General gives you your uh, your uh, uh, medal, so it's yeah, it's very 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 cool. And and so what the fa- is, is is absolutely beautiful. I I can imagine. Beautiful. So what what did the family say about this? What was their reaction? Um, I I think uh, cool, very very cool. We're, we're <laughs> used <regularly. Yeah. laughs> so do they have to call you sir now or anything like that? Yeah. yeah. No, I have friends that do joke about that, and I said, "No, no, we're not. That's not what this is." Um, oh, and just a regardless, just a, a huge, huge honor to be 
apparently the first um, in in auto racing. That's well. There you go, right there. So you yeah. know, you're always credited for uh, you know bringing the to the forefront the Canadian uh, auto racing industry and such. And and now there you are. You've done it this way with the Order of Canada. Well, congratulations, Ron. We'll get you back on the air and talk about the next season at Canadian in uh, Canadian Tire Motorsports Park uh, as soon as the season gets going. But uh, savor the moment. It's a it's a great win. Uh, congratulations. We'll chat later. Thanks very much, Scott. Ron Fellows, co-owner of Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, uh, a.k.a. Mossport, received the Order of Canada. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We spent so much time talking about uh, the education strike and what have you. We wish we were talking about other things like maybe health care or even last week's mini budget, which came out from the federal liberals, the economic statement, uh, and how it affects the day-to-day lives of uh, the average person. Let's bring in Don Fox, executive financial consultant, the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management, and is with us now, Investors Group. Uh, Don, thanks for taking the time. Hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Doing well. Thanks. Yourself? So far, so good. So uh, did you get much of a chance to digest what the economic statement was all about? Is there anything that stands out that's, yeah, this is going to help us? Well, they call it a mini budget for a reason, Scott, because I think it's uh, not a ton of it in there. Um, You know, there's the thing that came out, I suppose, is they are actually talking about balancing the budget. And you go back to when, you know, the first time liberals got in in power, they're talking about balancing the budget Mm. in the fourth year, which would have been 2019. And then it kind of went away. Like it was almost a a bad word to even talk about, you know, deficits and so forth. It wasn't even discussed. And now it's actually back on to, you know, their discussion as long as well as inflation. Inflation was talked, appeared over a hundred times in the mini budget. So you can see that inflation is, is a high priority. Um, to the point of even, you know, that a recession would be secondary and kind of tapering down that inflation because it is, uh, it is, I agree 100% that is one area that needs to be looked after because, you know, the cost of living erodes everybody's income. And so even if you are making a little bit more, you're in a worse case, a worse place rather, the following year. So inflation is a priority and good for them that they're you're acknowledging that and trying their best to figure out ways to get, get that down. Why do you think the change in tone of the of this? Because at one time this was all supposed to take care of itself. Now has it be just has it just become so much of a problem that it needs to be addressed? Or is there? I guess is this is this uh, positive or is it just smoke and mirrors? Uh, in terms of the deficit, Scott. Uh, in terms of this having any sort of impact on what we're going to do moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. No. The um, we have had all deficits since the Trudeau government came in and so, and it was getting a little bit, of course, COVID hit and that's even worse, Mm -hmm. you know, because now they had to put a lot of money into the economy, which, you know, good, good for them. It it really did prop it, prop up the economy, got us through this, but now also with interest rates higher, it's a tricky thing because they have to pay interest on the debt themselves too. So their, their percentage of the money going towards just debt repayment was over is 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 looked upon at around 41% of GDP. That's a lot of money of all their income going to just debt repayment. So they're realizing this is now an issue and they want to start to get that down. So that's one area. Now they're also they did hit a couple areas that I think are really smart actually. One would be increased immigration because every mm-hmm. employer out there right now is having a tough time getting workers 
and particularly healthcare was one, manufacturing, building, looking to get 500,000 new workers um, by 2025. So, you know, kudos there. I think that's a great area. Um, student loans tax-free. You know, if there's one area that you want to help, I would yeah. 100% agree, students. Um, I know it's taken a page out of the U.S. to a certain extent, and I agree with it in the U.S. also. I agree with it here. It's a, it's a time in your life where you've got bills coming every which way, and, you know, if you can re- reduce the interest on that, you know, so be it. So I think that's a great one. And um, putting more money, you know, putting money where their mouth is in terms of uh, the clean environment. And mm-hmm. they literally mirrored the tax credits the U.S. had in their bill. Now, they're not passed into law yet, but it was kind of interesting. Uh, a 30% refundable tax credit, okay? Uh, actually, it's refundable tax credit equal to 30% of the capital cost of investments. And this is investments into solar, uh, small molecular nuclear reactors, wind, yeah. hydro, wave, tidal, all the stuff that we've been hearing about. Also, even putting money towards uh, electric storage systems, which I guess would be batteries, and, uh, you know, uh, industrial zero emission vehicles. So, you know, this is, we, we talk about clean energy, we talk, it all comes back down to in, encouraging people and dollars speak louder than words. So I think that's a great idea. Uh, anything on carbon tax or our position on en- in, uh, energy when it comes to things like natural gas? They did not mention carbon tax at all that I yeah. saw in the budget. They did um they are putting a tax credit to support clean hydrogen. Yeah. So, you know what? Uh, again, putting money towards developing it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be replacing natural gas. No. But we've been talking about clean hydrogen for uh, twenty years. Yeah, I'd say thirty. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It's not. It's not whether how clean it is. It's the, in order to produce it, you're you're using as much energy or pollution as you weren't. So I mean, right. that's what it comes down to. Is it's you know, uh, uh, hydrogen's not. It's an element. It's not a fuel. So you got to convert it to a fuel, which obviously takes energy. And this is where if they can use wind or tidal or hydro yeah. to do it, they're looking at that as a clean energy source to create hydrogen. So, again, they all kind of interweave to, together. Uh, you know what? Any any impact here would be great. And, you know, obviously we're seeing the electric cars have taken hold and more and more vehicles uh, start with Tesla really kind of going strong with that area. But now you're seeing all the other competitors, GM, having announced all their um charging sites right across the U.S. So they're competing heavily now. So it starts with an idea and it starts to go and they realize there's money to be made in this area too. So it's great for the economy. And that's another thing, you know, because we've been talking about all of this for since the 80s. So uh, that being said, either there's money to be made in this industry or there isn't. Either these things are working or not. They just need more uh, uh, more R&D, more this, more that. But but again, and, you know, even with energy, with hydrogen, I mean, we've been talking about it for a long time, but there really, really hasn't been that much progress made. So we'll see if this changes the way uh, we look at things. And, and because at the end of the day, they're talking about replacing fossil fuels and we need a lot more output from this industry if that's going to get if that's going to be the case 100 percent agree with you, scott and it has been more talk than than actual seeing results but you know what uh you take somebody like elon musk all of a sudden he's sit there and he he grabbed the car made teslas everybody's saying well it won't be that much it'll be an insignificant share wasn't worthwhile next everybody's trying to catch up and so the leaders in the industry 
um, regardless of what it is, you know, whether it was Mac computers in their day versus, you know, the Microsoft computers, the, the ones yeah. they, they, they got them out first and they usually have a head start and they can make a lot more money. So there is a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of incentive rather for, for companies to go there, but they need money. And if yeah. there's tax credits to get them going towards this and being innovative right here in our backyard with McMaster Innovation Park. Yeah. You know, you I'm sure there's a lot of dollars that could be used there to help generate great ideas, great R&D that are practical to get off the ground and moving right here in Hamilton. Don Fox, executive financial uh, uh, executive financial consultant, the Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management is with us now. And of course, uh, every Saturday morning as well. Don, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Anytime, Scott. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Ontario voters, uh, through all of this, are pointing the finger at the Premier. It's all his fault, according to a new poll uh, that has been put out by Abacus Data. 62% of residents, uh, respondents believed that the Ford government bears most of the responsibility for the schools being closed. 38% blame the Canadian Union of Public Employees. Uh, this was conducted on November 4th and 5th of uh, last week. Uh, so, yeah, it, now it be interesting to see... <laughs> Well, I guess we should wait until maybe it's it's actually settled and we and we do get a settlement because we are not there yet. Let's bring in David Coletto, uh, CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data, and with us now, David. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, Scott. Great to be here. Uh, so, your thoughts? Surprised by these results at all? Well, yes and no. I guess yes because the Ford government rarely backs down and and kind of just even <laughs> when they know they're going to get into some hot water, they just kind of usually go go full steam ahead but no in the sense of having asked ontarians how they're feeling about this and and you know that stat you you cited 62 percent blame the provincial government the most for schools being closed i think it it it's not surprising that that they felt the political pressure over the weekend there was the threat of even more labor dis, uh, disruption you know potential you know, general strike even next Monday that that some of the unions were talking about. I think the government felt that better now to to get back to the table. You know, revert the course and and hope to um, at least politically stop any of the bleeding that that might have been happening to them. So no, I'm not really too surprised. But but as you said, quite a quite a strange, remarkable turn of events over the last uh, you know 48 hours, really. So considering where we are, Canadians coming out of a global pandemic, um, considering where we were prior to that, like, again, it, it, I'm 60 years old. I remember going through this as a kid, not only as a parent, but a kid. Uh, and it's the same thing over and over and over again. And this was the argument prior to the pandemic. doesn't matter what the political party is. Yet now it, it's like post-pandemic, it's like we're ignoring that. It, it, it's like, well, all of a sudden we're on this side instead of that side when I thought we would kind to move forward to more change same thing with the healthcare system we'd find out different ways of doing things and here we are back to where we are with the 70s 80s 90s 2000s what have you i, I i'm I, that's i guess what i meant by a surprise yeah and i i also think it's it's reflective of where we are though as as coming out of this pandemic everyone's just tired yeah you know and i think my read of public opinion right now is people just wanted lives back to normal and Peace the, in the politics valley, yeah. Right, the politics of this fight over um, 
over over you know wages and working conditions for people who, um, in this case, don't make all that much money seemed odd to people. And they just wanted both government and the unions to get back to the table, find a fair agreement, and keep the schools open. Right? Everybody agreed. I think you know, if, if Minister Lecce said one thing that's absolutely correct, it's everybody wants kids in school. Um, I think where the government overplayed their hand, and we saw this in our polling, is people, most people anyways, felt they went too far using the notwithstanding clause, forcing, um, you know, workers back to work who hadn't yet striked at all, even though they had a, a vote and they were ready to go on Friday, they hadn't yet, you know, uh, stopped working. It just seemed, I think, out of step with with most people. And I think that's why, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming, um, you know, we were, ours was the only poll that was released, but I'm assuming that a lot of MPPs, maybe the premier's office, maybe the minister's office got a lot of calls over the, the last few days that that told them um, it's it's probably best for us to, to find a, a more reasonable solution to this and let people get back to their lives. Winners or losers here? Because at the end, as you said, the premier looks pragmatic now. I think so. But but I think, he you know, it's better that he, I think, made this decision for him. Uh, you know, we weren't seeing a lot of political pain for the government yet, from the PCs yet, but that didn't mean if this extended and went right. on that it wouldn't. I, I think... You know, frankly, I think the labor movement in, in Ontario, I think, can feel good that they were able to achieve. Uh, we'll see what the negotiation produces, but at least they were they're back at the table. So I think they're going to feel that, that this was a victory for them, that, that getting together collective action still can work um, for the government. You know, you know, my view is it, 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 it stings a little bit. Right. They had to completely change course and, and pull back a piece of legislation they only passed a few days ago. I think there's a lot of MPPs who who stood up and voted in favor of that law are probably now wondering, hey guys, you know, running this running the show, what, what were you thinking? And and you here's, told here's my that, here's right? my point, David, and this is all in the positioning and all in in the messaging and such. But again, before the weekend, it was the strike mandate came down for Friday. It's like take that off the table or we'll legislate. No, we're not going to do that. So then the legislation happened. Then at the end of the weekend, it's like, don't strike. If you if you if you stop the strike, we'll take the legend legislation off the table, which was the initial question before the weekend anyway. It was. But I think, yeah. And, and again, like, it's, like, to- it's like two different people saying the exact same thing and pretending there's some sort of argument and then coming to the same solution. And I think I think most people in the province <laughs> looked at both sides and said, you know, guys are adults have a conversation, stop playing yeah. political games with our kids. And and so I think both sides are going to, you know, are probably um, in the public's minds, not, not in the best light. But it was, you know, ultimately the premier and the government that that took this very rare case and used this 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 almost hammer mm-hmm. um, to, to push this through. And I think the not was using the notwithstanding clause w- was the step too far. And in our survey, you know, 50% of people thought it was a bad idea to use it. Um, you know, they, most people in the province believe that, that, that workers have a right to negotiate and, and bargain collectively. And so the speed by which they f- forced them back to work when they hadn't yet left, I think, was, was just off-putting to, to, to most people. Right. So this will be a lesson, I think, for other governments across the country, for perhaps the way that, that the Ford government um, you know, approaches negotiations with other public sector unions that they're negotiating with now, and will be one of those those moments in our history where we'll look back and and probably learn quite a bit about as we as, as we deal with these things in the future. 
Kind of like the Emergencies Act. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Except we'll it's probably it not going to be a week, you know, multiple week long inquiry into to understanding, you know, what was what yeah. were the decisions made in the premier's office and the minister's office around this. Thank goodness for that. Uh, David Coletto is with us, uh, CEO and founding partner, Abacus Data. David, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I, yeah, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks. Mr. Lowe, our friend Mr. Lowe, a uh, retired uh, school teacher. Now all schools, he writes, now all schools for the first time in two years can hold a real in-person Remembrance Day service this Friday and thank those for the freedoms we enjoy. Uh, there you go. Uh, good thing with the strike being over now, <laughs> and hopefully that's it. Uh, now the kids can... Uh, participate in remembrance day services this friday uh and thank those for the freedoms that uh we all enjoy well put feel free send us a note scott thompson at 900 chml.com all right um obviously with this day after a uh, time change weekend it's a little um you know but look at it this way when we get up it's nice and bright <laughs> but like by five o'clock five thirty uh the sun's pretty much setting and uh, a good time for a new study from the University of Ottawa's Sleep Research Laboratory and finding out, well, is it early birds or night owls? Who has the advantage? Let's bring in Aaron Gibbons, uh, PhD, postdoctoral fellow, Sleep Research Laboratory, School of Psychology, University of Ottawa, in with us now. Aaron, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. So are there uh, morning people and night people? I mean, do we actually fall into those categories? Yeah, we do. So there's been a lot of research in the past that has shown that some people are morning types, some people are evening types, and a few of us fall right in the middle as neither types. So what is the difference? Does it, and, and how much does age play into this? So great question. There's two parts to that. And the first one is that um, the difference is really when are you most optimal? When can you do your best work? When do you prefer to get going? Are you one of those people that can jump up in the morning and do all your best work right as soon as kind of the you open your eyes? Or are you one of those people that gets going slowly, but you're good to go all night? So that's what we're talking about in terms of chronotype. And in terms of age, this is something that we see a lot, that it varies over your lifespan. So everyone's kind of individual, but in general, we see that newborns, infants, super early in the morning, you know, they'll wake you up at 5 or 6 a.m., mm. As you get to be a teenager, maybe university, it gets later until you're an evening type. And then as you mature as an adult, especially into the elderly, you come back to that really morning chronotype again. And what is the reasoning for that? I mean, especially elder people getting up early. I'm, I'm convinced it's got something to do with, you know, having to get up and go to the washroom. But that's another story. Uh, what, uh, <laughs> what is the reasoning for that? Uh, you know, I, I think you're, you're pretty close there is that there's lots of research. It's a really complicated question with a number of um, genetic factors and environmental factors. And so we don't really have a full picture of it yet, but it has to do with your own biological rhythms and your biological cycles. So what about kids and specifically math? You know, I, I um, you know, you've he heard things that it's better to get do it earlier in the day because the kids are more alert than on the other hand, you hear kids are like brain dead till they're like 10 or 11 in the morning. So how do you balance that? W what do we know? Yeah, this is actually a really good question. And it really comes back to school, the, the, the schedule of schools being set by adults, when it would be good for them to do it, and not mm. necessarily thinking about when it's the best for kids. So putting math 
right in the morning is exactly how adults would want to do it. But for kids, the morning might not be the best time to get their peak kind of cognitive performance out of them. Better to maybe have them starting later and ending later. Better to have them starting later and ending later. The problem is, is that we go to work early and come home early because as adults, that's when we need to be fresh and that's when we're on the best. What about those that work shift work? Um, you know, I've, I've got friends that are either EMS or, or fire or police or what have you, and it's like two weeks this, two weeks that, and I don't know how they do it. Yeah, there's a large body of research that just says that is that is brutal on the body and brutal on the on the brain and on your cognitive performance. It's really, really difficult when you can't get into that regular routine that we really need that our brain loves. Is there enough evidence to suggest that maybe we should rethink doing this? I mean, obviously, as you've mentioned, just with the parents, it's convenient for EMS. It's convenient for uh, shift work for those, you know, managing all of that. But is it the best for the people that are on the front lines? You know, I think that's a that's a bigger question than than I'm an expert in. So I'll, I'll leave that to be debated. But what we what we do know is that the brain craves regularity and and your your chronotype and when you're most optimal you can train that to some extent what's really tough is when it shifts all over the place so what can we learn from this uh especially coming out of a time change weekend yeah that's the big question here so this is actually a really interesting study and the 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 findings were even a bit surprising to us because there's a lot of research that says that later chronotypes or these night owl types have the cognitive advantage and they have better verbal intelligence. Um, But what we found is that once you account for things like age and things like bedtime, actually it's the people who are a little bit more morning tendencies or have more morning tendencies that actually tend to do better. So is the message here, the early bird still gets the worm? That's exactly what it is. All right, Aaron Givens with us, uh, PhD, Sleep Research Laboratory, School of Psychology, University of Ottawa, and their new uh, paper into sleep research. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you so much. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. If the Prime Minister wants to sit down and have a constitutional conversation with all the premiers, I can assure you all the premiers will be there to talk about uh, the constitutional changes if he wants to go down that road. I'd highly recommend not to. This was kind of funny. Uh, (laughs) So Doug Ford, you know, brings in the the notwithstanding clause to to ram through the legislation to uh, end the strike or put the strike. We'll get to that in a second. And then uh, Justin Trudeau calls him out for overreach and abusing people's freedoms while we're in the midst of a six-week, very expensive six-week inquiry into the calling of an emergency act when we had 90% of the population vaccinated and within six months it was irrelevant. Uh, and yet doesn't call out uh, the Premier of Quebec for using the notwithstanding clause to ram home uh, racist uh, uh, policy, including not being able to wear your religious symbols uh, in in government regulated offices. It's just it's just amazing. It's all in the messaging, and we've seen it again over the past weekend with the strike. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
Yes, I am, and I hope you are too, Scott. So here's what I want to blow by you, Alyssa. You tell me what you think. So on uh, end of last week, uh, the the union, the QP union, says uh, they introduced the five day strike mandate. It's coming down Friday. Blah 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 blah. Lecce says if you don't take that off the table and you, you take the strike stuff off the table, we're going to legislate. So we all know what happens. They go on strike. They legislate. They go on strike on Friday. Blah blah blah. Today. Doug Ford comes up and says, if you end the strike, we'll pull the legislation. So basically the same thing except backwards. And now we're at the exact same place. Both people said the exact same place. And the offer was, stop the strike, we'll remove the legislation. Now it's, stop the strike, we'll remove the legislation. Or remove the legislation, we'll strike. I mean, we're, we started at the same place and ended up at the same place, but there was some sort of fight in the middle. What are your thoughts? Well, here's what changed. The court of public opinion changed, Scott. And normally when Lecce has talked tough to the unions about striking, about their pay raises, most people have been on the side of the government. We don't think it, teachers or anybody else needs any more money uh, than they already have. Thank you very much. And not only that, but, you know, it's been COVID. You know, we need to keep our kids in school. So the conservatives basically took that narrative, that same narrative that worked pre-COVID and thought, well, you know what? More than ever, parents want to keep their kids in school. So let's just trot that out again. Except this time, Scott, it did not work. See, see, let me interrupt you there, because what I'm seeing is that there's the union trotting out the same old tactics that they did pre-pandemic, post-pandemic. But it's amazing that public opinion has moved onto the union side. And that's what happened here. So for the first time ever, when I was monitoring social media throughout the weekend, and, you know, I follow a number of um, female influencers, mom influencers, and a lot of them, a lot of them were reposting this a paragraph to give to your child's teacher that says, so-and-so will not be participating in online learning. We support QP, and we understand that, you know, our kid may miss school and uh, grades may suffer, but we don't care. We're not on the government side. And that is the first time ever I have really seen that en masse from a demographic that really hasn't given a hoot over the past few years. And I have to tell you, Scott, today I passed the, the teachers on strike. I rolled down my window, gave them a honk, and gave them a, a fist in solidarity. I would have <laughs> never done that. I would have never done that. But I think that, and, you know, you mentioned what Trudeau said about uh, Ford's overreach. And, yeah, you can sort of like talking out of both sides of his mouth, mouth which you alluded to. But right now, the Ford gover- government is not having a very good PR day. So, uh, <laughs> so now how do they look? Because to me, and again, to me, this offer was there on Thursday. They said exactly the same thing on Thursday. Remove the strike mandate. We'll remove the legislation. They said today, we'll remove the legislation if you remove the, the, the strike mandate. So to me, both said exactly the same thing, yet today, one one's but claiming one victory, but one blank. Yeah. So is that blinking as in losing, or is that blinking as in strategically doing the right thing? 
I think it's blinking the way the public looks at it, Scott, yeah. and you bring up two very valid points. Um, it's blinking as in losing. And when you look at that, and as soon as they came out with that, when Doug Ford may had that recent press conference, and the first thing that, and, and very astutely, is who owns the narrative and who owns the news cycle. You know, when the head of the union says, the government blinked, I thought in my head, hmm, the government blinked. And then the head of the union says, the government blinked. And I think that's the prevailing feeling. And I think the difference is now is that parents and Ontarians expect for the Ford government to pay these people what they feel they deserve. And there's all sorts of people who say, you know, you go into early childhood education and they say to you, this is what you're going to make. So it's not, it's not uh, like you didn't know. So I think that people are more empathetic. I think that people are worried about a recession. I think that people are worried for a change about their fellow person. And it's interesting the way the wind blows in terms of public opinion, Scott, but that's where I feel it is right now. What happens when the rest line up for negotiations? Because you know that's coming. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's, it's the way the wind is blowing. So if the uh, QP gets, you know, what they want or close to what they want, then of course the rest are going to line up. But I think it depends what those people do and what it means to Ontarians. Lots of Ontarians, lots of working parents depend on those support workers that are there for their kids at school. So it hits home on a more personal level. So I think it depends on how the unions want to present a narrative that makes it so that Ontarians care about their cause. And that is not an easy thing to do. But right now, the school, union, you know, the QP and the other unions, they've often had many, many missteps over the years. And their narrative has been just ridiculous. And you and I have, been, have talked about it. Mm-hmm. But this time, they happen to be the way the wind is blowing. They have public opinion and public sentiment on their side. And right now, it's working in their favor. So are we going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, where this is just going to continue and keep continuing? Because I've had it. I'm done. And I certainly appreciate the, the right to collect a bargain in, in, in the private enterprise process. But this is a public service monopoly. So uh, like, I'm all for just declaring them essential service or whatever it needs to get them all shoved into a soundproof room and let them with their box of Timbits hammer it out and let us all know what the deal is at the end. But this has got to stop. This is BS, Alyssa. And, and, you know, I think in many, in many respects you're right. And I think that, you know, the public appetite for union bargaining only goes so far. And I thought the very same thing that you did this morning, to be quite honest. I said, we, we forgot about what's, we, for, we forgot about we what's forgot. been happening. We all have short-term memories when yeah. it comes to these type of issues, Scott. You know that. I mean, our short-term memories can't even go back six months to remember. Mm. So, you know, will it go back to that? I don't know. I don't think so. But I think that right now, at this time, this is what the the public is feeling. I think they want to see their the, the the salaries of the workers that take care of their kids for eight hours a day to be above the poverty line. And I think that they've got the wind behind their backs. Whether that maintains, the way it will maintain is if they don't make any ridiculous narrative missteps.
Yeah. And here's another you know? question, which we don't have time yeah. to answer because we've got to run. Go but, ahead, like, go. why are we not discussing discussing education assistance uh, contracts at the same time we're doing teachers? Because I see they fit more into that realm than they do uh, with secretaries or custodial staff. But that's a whole other question we'll have oh, later. Oh, that would make way too much sense, Scott. You know. <laughs> Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Always fun, Alyssa. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We remember, uh, during the height of the global pandemic, when we'd all run out onto our front porch and bang the pots and pans to cheer on our uh, burnt-out, fatigued uh, healthcare industry. And that was in the early stages of this. You can imagine what it's like two and a half years later. Uh, and we promised during that time that we would fix our ailing healthcare system, the one we used to always brag about, but not realize how fragile it really was until we were in a global pandemic. Uh, I want to bring in Campbell Clark, uh, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Campbell Clark writes in the Globe and Mail that quote the meeting of health ministers that opens Monday night in Vancouver is a crucial is of crucial importance to the country, but the participants themselves don't seem to realize it. To talk more, Campbell Clark with us, chief political writer of the Globe and Mail. He's here now. Campbell, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me. So, uh, as I said, during the pandemic, we all promised we'd fix this. Are you confident we still have that uh, determination? No. I think it's pretty clear that there's been, in the past year especially, a lot of finger-pointing about who's responsible, how we should solve the problem, and, you know, the provinces, the provincial governments that are primarily responsible for healthcare haven't done uh, a big rebuild of our healthcare systems and they spend a lot of time pointing the finger at the feds, and then the feds push back that you haven't told us what you're going to do about health care if we give you money, and the public is caught in between, you know, there's a runaround, and we are not getting the, the rebuild we would normally expect at this time. So uh, we remember the day when everybody uh, uh, cheered about uh, uh, Medicare and health care and such. The feds were paying 50 percent. The provinces were paying 50 percent. Now it's whittled down to 22 percent roughly for uh, the federal government. Um, there seems to be more talk about a dental care plan or $10 a day care. Uh, and it appears to me we're going down the same route without a different template. I mean, how long before those pro- uh, programs start to be throttled back as well? Is this a funding issue or is it about changing the whole template? Well, that's, I mean, in some ways it's a funding issue, but it's really a question of someone taking responsibility, right? Like when we're talking about healthcare, we know that this is the priority, the political priority of Canadians. It has been for a long time, by the way, but more acutely so now. And we know how fragile the system is. In fact, the fragility of the system was one of the reasons we had longer lockdowns and tougher restrictions during the pandemic yeah. because our premiers kept warning us, you know, if we don't do, if we don't do these things, if we don't have these restrictions, the healthcare system will fall apart. So now you know, it would be incumbent on the provinces to do something about that. And they keep saying we don't have enough federal money. Of course, the taxpayers, we're going to end up paying for it either way, whether it's the feds or the provinces that pay for it. And they just can't make come to an agreement on, you know, how that who should get credit for what and how the, that's kind of the big issue that's 
So that you bring up a very valid point in your column here, Campbell, and it's you said like, uh, well, if the feds give money, they want to dictate where it goes. It's not necessarily they want to dictate where it goes, but they want credit for fixing it. That's a little different. Uh, they want to be seems. able to say we spent this money on you know doctors or nurses or mental health care. They don't want to say um, that we spent twenty eight billion dollars on health care. You know, it was a drop in the healthcare bucket, and not be able to say specifically where it went. And that's about getting political credit. But it's also because, you know, they have poured money into healthcare in the past, and they have reduced it, as you mentioned, over time. But they haven't always got credit for it, right? They, they, they did transfer tax points back in the seventies, and the provinces have forgotten that. They want, don't want to be telling people we're spending twenty-eight billion dollars because the public doesn't really know. You know, they can't work out and don't spend a lot of time working out who paid how much. What they want to know, the public, yeah. is we're getting more doctors or we're getting more nurses or there's going to be psychiatrists to treat health, mental health problems. And they're right. The public is right. That's what they should care about. One of the problems is the provinces keep talking about money and, you know, whether the prime minister will meet them to talk about money. And that's not what people care about. What people want to hear is what is the provincial plan? for fixing health care, for improving things, for getting more doctors. You know, if they put that forward, the federal government would have a lot of political pressure to help pay for it. I have a hard time believing that's the only problem. I remember talking to the head of the Canadian Dental Association. Uh, this was like six months ago, eight months ago, and they, when the dental care first thing started, and they said, you know, there's plenty of great programs at the provincial level that mm-hmm. service their own situations. It's just there's lack of funding. So, um, you know, what are they doing? Asking for money and just using it for band-aids. So, well, let's fix the lineup for kneecaps or, or hip replacements or whatever. Um, I don't know. How, how do we come up with that plan? Is that something all the provinces are doing together? What is the objective of this meeting in Vancouver? Well, the objective, the objective should be to work out you know, what the priorities are, how, what the priorities are that, that transcend provincial borders, right? What it is that has to be done in order to, you know, improve or rebuild the healthcare system coast to coast. And that would be sort of the pretext for why the federal government needs to pay more. But it, so far, the, pre, the provinces haven't wanted to talk about that out in the public too much. And you can sort of guess why. Right? They, once you start saying, we need, you know, 10% more doctors, then the provinces will be under pressure to deliver 10% more doctors. It seems to me, though, Campbell, that most of the provinces, though, I mean, everything's different, everybody's different, but for the most part, everybody needs a new uh, family doctor. I mean, a lot of these problems are all the same. They are all the same. They're getting worse in some places, right? In Ontario, certainly the the shortage of family doctors is very, uh, is getting quite acute. In Quebec, uh, the healthcare system has been pretty stretched for quite a long time. Uh, you know, they, but all of the provinces also know that those demands aren't going to get smaller as time goes on. The population is aging, that healthcare is going to take up a bigger and bigger portion of their budget. So they're looking for someone to make a long-term commitment. But at the moment, there's no break in the logjam between... Mm. You know, you give me money, you tell me how you're going to, the provinces say to the feds, you give me money, and the feds say to the provinces, you tell me how you're going to spend it, make some commitments, and still no breakthrough. 
We have a crucial uh, we have a crucial chance to lift the inertia on the healthcare crisis. Writes Campbell Clark. It's in the Globe and Mail right now. Let's uh, let's hope we get the uh, the determination to finish this through, especially after a global pandemic. Campbell, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in economic development. You know, it's funny. I remember uh, back in the day, uh, everybody was waiting for Hamilton to turn the corner. Turn the corner. Oh, you just wait till Hamilton turns the corner, man. You won't be able to stop it. Well, um, it's been a long time since we turned the corner, and uh, now everybody's hair is flying in the breeze with the speed that the city is uh, taking off. And uh, it's amazing to see, and certainly uh, after a lot of hard work from a lot of very dedicated people, including economic development in the city of Hamilton. Let's bring in Judy Lamb, manager, commercial districts and small businesses for the city of Hamilton and with us now. Judy, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. We're really busy here. So let's talk about that, because obviously Hamilton was off and running prior to a global pandemic. Then we all know what happened, two and a half years of lockdowns and slowdowns and everything. Uh, Have we pretty much just picked up where we have left off? Has it increased, decreased? How are we in in a post-pandemic world, if I can call it that? Well, um, that's a good question, because last year in 2021, we had the highest year ever for building permits. We passed surpassed $2 billion. So actually, even during the pandemic, we actually uh, reached a new height. And this year, it looks like, you know, we might not be quite aside, but it'll be the second biggest year. We're almost there as well. Might, might not make the actual $2 billion, but uh, we're doing pretty well. And, you know, we're monitoring our businesses and our business improvement areas, our commercial districts. And uh, the vacancy rates in our retail and restaurants actually is pretty low as well. Did we have a bit of a building boom during the pandemic? And, and did that create opportunity? Yes, we, we saw uh, a big increase in the industrial and commercial uh, projects, which is uh, really good news for us. A lot of new employers, uh, you know, Amazon, L3 Hair is an example. And, you know, Amazon originally thought that they'd hire, you know, about maybe 1,600, 1,700 uh, people. They're actually at 4,000 now. And maybe for the uh, holiday season, they might even reach 6,000. So we're seeing these major employers come into the city, which is, you know, good news with all the jobs that's being created here. Uh, Hamilton was, you know, obviously on the comeback long before this pandemic and such, but we still keep hearing more and more news about more and more people coming in. Uh, Do you just anticipate this trend happening for the next, say, five years, 10 years? Yes, I think there's also, you know, our proximity to the GTA obviously is is a big reason. Um, You know, we're building a lot of projects uh, in the downtown to increase the density and so we're seeing people move into our core as well which is good news for commercial districts the um, and I think this will continue the interest is here you know we're getting LRT which is attracting a lot of attention the fact that we have two-way all-day go now is also another reason why you know we we can do that outreach even larger so it's a easy commute, uh, whether where, wherever you work, and so I I think the uh, trend will continue. And Hamilton is ideally 
sort of situated, you know, halfway between the U.S. Mm. border and Toronto. And I just think it's just going to be one big corridor in terms of where you work, where you live, and it's a it's an easy commute. So I think this will continue. And, uh, you know, I remember saying years ago, just geographically, Hamilton's going to win just for exactly the same reasons you just said. I mean, just expansion and where things are going. What I also find fascinating is, you know, uh, 20 years ago, whatever, there might have been one or two little spots within the city that were little gems. Now we're seeing those popping up everywhere. And all of these individual communities now sort of bridge the gaps between downtown. Uh, the anything is possible on Barton Street, a great idea. Uh, Ottawa Street doing the same thing, trying to to get give rebirth to these areas and really showcase them for what they have. Yes. And I think what's, um, you know, Hamilton has to offer is that we have our culture, their heritage assets here. And, um, you know, the anything on Barton is a project that focuses on uh, the artists, local artists. We were able to su- submit our project to under the, my main street community activator program. And so it was chosen. And I think, People have an opportunity to look at the potential we have on Barton Street. These pop-up windows will be, uh, is actually located at uh, some of the vacant storefronts on Barton Street. And so there's an opportunity not only to look at the art while you're strolling and visiting the shops and the restaurants, that if you have an idea to actually, um, your own idea of opening a business, you now know where they're available on Barton. And if I can add on that last year we created a new program that can help supplement that is uh, I was wondering what the pandemic would mean in terms of vacant storefronts because we didn't know exactly what mm. how it would turn out. And so a, a temporary program was created that we can provide a grant if you're interested in uh, opening up a business in our uh, any vacant storefront within our commercial districts or downtowns and um, this grant can be as short as three months so that maybe it's a pop-up idea that you have that it's a way of you exploring the viability of that business all right judy lamb with us manager commercial districts and small business for the city of hamilton what economic development in the city is up to and we should mention uh although we're out of time the pivot Sym- uh, symposium the pivot symposium coming to the cotton factory on november 18th bringing its focus to create uh, creating community through uh technology and the arts that's coming up november 17th at the cotton factory that's the pivot symposium judy thank you so much for the time good luck keep up the great work thank you very much what we want is to sit down at the table. I have put out a, a massive olive branch. I'm not sure this is a massive olive branch. Don't get me wrong. I am so happy they're back together. I, I'm just, I have no time for any of this. Uh, simply, and, and that's not, that's not labor relations. That's not, uh, collective bargaining, any of that. I'm just saying in the private sector, go nuts. But in the public sector, where there's a monopoly situation and it affects so many people, we've got to come up with another way. Uh, I'd rather see this conversation talking about healthcare. I'd rather see this conversation 
been talking about anything else than over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Every year for the last 40 or 50 years, every couple of years, there's some sort of education, either strike or threat to strike or extracurriculars or what have you. So I think everybody wants to see people making a fair wage and getting fair treatment for the great work that they do. But I also think parents have had enough of this song and dance. I really do. And um, to me, it was, uh, you know, again, you hear the, the premier extending an olive branch. I don't think there was anything different offered today than was offered last week. Uh, we remember the government saying last week after the union put a five day notice on to strike on Friday, you take the strike off the table or we'll have legislation and, and force you back and never got there instead had a strike. And then this morning it's, we'll remove the legislation if you get rid of the strike. Now, maybe said the different, like, backwards, but it's the same thing. So I'm not sure we're any farther ahead today than we were last Thursday. I think we both uh, started at the same place, finished at the same place, but took a different route to get there. Uh, and I'm not sure what's next. Let's bring in Judy Fudge, Professor of Labor Studies, McMaster University. Judy, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. I hope you are, too. Uh, so far, so good. Your thoughts, Judy? I mean, didn't didn't don't we have basically the same thing before the weekend and after the weekend? I mean, the, you know, there was the threat of the strike there. Then the legislation came down to get that off the table. Didn't happen. Had the strike, uh, a, a little protest in there, and then came back and offered the same thing, and we ended up in the same place. I think you you and I are watching different movies, Scott. <laughs> I think you're. <laughs> um, uh, it's true we don't have an agreement. We also don't have a strike, but we also don't have draconian legislation that was retroactive and violated not only the charter and used the notwithstanding clause, which the government is entitled to, but a range of the provisions in the legislation. The I know, but hang on, hang on. Let me, let me interrupt you there. Is very, very different. So know, now we have a government who cannot threaten to use the sledgehammer against yeah, but, the union. But so wait a sec, Judy. Story. I, I know, I know you, the legalities of it. Is your soundtrack not on? <laughs> Maybe you should put the soundtrack on. <laughs> I understand what you're saying, Judy. But again, the point that I'm making out of all of this was the sledgehammer legislation was so they wouldn't go on strike. And then they went on strike anyway. So both the strike is gone and the sledgehammer legislation, which was brought in to take the strike off the table. So I understand the legalities around the sledgehammer. And, I, and, and you know, I'm sure you're absolutely correct on that. Uh, I'm sure of that. Um, and, and we know that it was a sledgehammer. But the point is, the whole idea of that was to take the strike off the table. The strike's now off the table. Now they can negotiate. I disagree with you. I disagree with you, Scott. That wasn't the point of the legislation. The point of the legislation wasn't to end a strike. The point of the legislation was to save the government money. The government that spent $1.8 billion giving us license rebates decided that it was not going to bargain in good faith with these workers who had been receiving 1% wage increases for the past three years and was going to write their collective agreement because it wasn't going to pay for them. 
So it could have avoided a strike by bargaining in good faith. And most public sector bargaining initiatives go on without any strikes or even without a threat of strike because most parties bargain in good faith. So this legislation wasn't about ending a strike. It was about keeping these wages down as a signal to everyone else so it could spend money on giving it a buck a beer, new license plates, <laughs> new cars for the premier, and a free oh, rebate boy. for you and me. Okay. Uh, okay. That's what it was. Scott. So we're on a different thing. I don't know. Are you watching subtitles? No, no, no. And Judy, Judy, I'm glad we're on totally different sides because this is what great discussion is all no, about. No, no, no. We're not on. We're not on different sides, Scott. We're in different realities. <laughs> no, so there, there's okay. a difference. So, okay. There's all a right. difference between sides and reality. Okay. So some of these things are partisan and we can disagree. We can disagree around a range of things. We might think that there's better ways of resolving collective bargaining disputes in the public sector. Now, lots of countries have our mechanism. If you can find a better way, Scott, and you can come up with a better thing that isn't just telling people that this is what they have to accept, I'd love to hear it. I really would. I mean, we only I seem to do this with the education industry, though. There's no other industry where we get, you know, that this happens time and time and time again. Like, I can't think of another industry other than the education industry where over the last, say, 40, 45 years that this happens every single couple of years and we haven't moved forward on it, whether it's EMS or anybody. So there has to be a way because others are doing it. Well, I think that we have had a lot of disputes here in Ontario historically it goes back to the mike harris government and some of the changes they made by taking away powers from the school boards and putting it in the central government we do have a history of a lack of trust and this has exacerbated it i do think it would be better to have more good faith bargaining i completely agree but that's not going to happen if people are going to threaten things right off the outset Now, when it comes to the strike, if the workers don't have a strike vote and give a strike notice, then the government or their employer in the private sector and public sector can impose a collective agreement and they can do nothing. So they have to do it. The law requires them to do it. It's not the union's choice. It's the law requiring it. If they had other leverages, I think it would be absolutely great. I would love to find a different solution. But this is the best system we have so far. Uh, I don't know. Like, Judy, every single political party for the last 40 years has had to deal with this. And I'm not a member of any of them. I voted for all three of them at one point in my life. So what happens now? Because this does not show any sign of changing. Yet again, it's only this industry we do this in. What's next? Oh, no. I don't think it's only this industry. We have had these kinds of disputes. and Not on a consistent basis like this. Not on a consistent basis like this, Judy. Well, I think that we have a situation here where there is an opposition between the unions in the education sector and the Ontario government as it's run by the Conservatives. 
this historical bad feelings of the 19. What about the liberals? The last power. 20 years? What about the liberals? The yes, liberals are in power since, I, the, since the new millennium. I, They've been dealing with the same thing. They made McGinty walk the plank. He was the teacher's premier. I agree. And they also had lots of problems with that, but they also kept in certain of the controls in the legislation. So this is what happens when you have disputes. No, there may be better ways of solving this. And I think my view is that this is the long-term strategy of this government to privatize as much as possible of the public education system, to move to the system that we have in Alberta, we have in the United States, where you have public funding for private schools. So I think this is what's going on. And I think this is the fear that the unions have. It's true. People get in the midst of disputes. It's really, really unfortunate. But what would you suggest? Would you suggest I don't know. I mean, government it, just no, impose? I, okay. Okay. No, so, I, I'm not suggesting, so, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting anybody imposes anything. I'm saying we do what we do in other industries and make this happen because this is the only industry where, despite the government of the day, NDP, liberal or conservative, we have these problems decade after decade after decade after decade after decade to the point where I'm a student okay. or when I was a student and then my kids are going through it. Judy, we'll continue okay. the discussion. I got to let you go. Judy Fudge with us, professor okay. of labor studies, McMaster University. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. You can read him there. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Let me run this by you and give me your thoughts because you're, you know, you're a, you're a level-headed guy. So Sometimes. Um on, because uh, I just got called out from Judy Fudge, Professor of Labor Studies at Mac, sending that I'm like on a different plane, but it was a great conversation. Um, so anyway, uh, at the beginning, at the end of last week, uh, the government says you remove to the union, you remove the strike legislation uh, about the five day strike coming on Friday, and we won't have this legislation. And of course, everything blew up, and there was the strike, and here we are today with the government saying backwards we'll remove the legislation if you stop the strike and then everything was okay isn't that the exact same thing and again like there's the you know the the premier saying i'm holding out an olive branch and god bless them but i don't it's the exact same thing that they mentioned uh last week just in a different order so it seems we've started and ended at the same place but a different journey to get there well, look, it's not exactly the same place. And I think that part of this may have been, do we believe they will do this? Maybe no. And if they, if we force their hand, if we as the union can force the government to do this, do we win the public relations battle by getting people angry that they would bring in the notwithstanding clause? And look, Scott, in any kind of public sector strike, in any kind of strike period, a big part of getting what you want is winning the public relations battle. You have yeah. to be the one that has the public's vote on this yeah. one. Because it's so politics, yeah. It's politics. If you want the government to relent, you have to have the people telling the government, we don't stand with you. And so to yeah. force their hand here. Now, 
let's let's stop for a second because there's another hand that could be forced soon, and that would be, well, if no deal is done, if the government ups their offer, which I expect they will, why would you do this and then go back to the table and then offer the exact same thing? So yeah. they'll up their offer. If the union doesn't accept this, and the union then, as we heard in the news and maybe on your show, I can't remember, but uh, said, well, we still maintain, we still hold on to the right to strike here. We're not saying we'll never strike. Yeah. If yeah. they go on strike, I think then the public relations thing switches and all of a sudden they're the bad guy because now the kids yeah. are home and it's not the government. They're at the table negotiating and you decided that two or two and a half or three or three and a half percent wasn't good enough when other people at home in the private sector aren't getting three or three and a half percent, are losing money from their work. So this is this to me is entirely about trying to win the public relations war, however it must be done, to the point where... Your point is kind of correct. We are at exactly the same place we would have been before, but there's a little bit of now water under the bridge. And the big bully, the big bad man, has blinked. Has in, in well, as I he heard said, that. I'm handing out a massive olive branch. And <laughs> God bless the premier, but this ain't no olive branch. He's offered them the same thing he offered them last week. So I, I'm not sure... Uh, again, and the positive could be now the big bully is thinking pragmatically and he's listening. Well, I heard that line. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's anything. And what's next? Like, as you said, what's the next hand? Well, so I, I heard that line from one of the other union leaders that said that the government has blinked and a couple things on that one. First of all, I'm not sure. And I get what's going on again. Same thing we're talking about. I'm not sure that when there is a moment of conciliation where we've decided we're each going to step yeah. back, that yeah. the best way to militant. deal with this is then to take a shot at the person. That, that, that to me is is like yeah. schoolyard yeah. silliness. It's very militant. It's very militant. Well, it's always militant. We know it's always militant, but again... I don't think got, it is. I think got, it's more militant around the education unions. I'm sorry, but well, I no, love no, the for, way for sure, the governments and the auto industries, and they've all come together and saw the light and now moving forward and lots of, lots of great announcements. I think these guys are stuck in the 70s. Man. But Scott, if you've got two people who are in a bar fight and they're about to, like, two, they're about to just smash bottles over each each other's heads and then they decide to okay you know what you put your bottle down i'll put mine down we'll talk this out and they do it and then someone on the sideline goes you're a chicken to one of them you're (laughs) a jerk like why are you trying you've got a chance here to talk why are you standing on the sidelines trying to fire it up again that to me is again that that seems sort of silly like is the point here Ultimately, is the point here to get a deal that makes people satisfied or is the point to win or defeat somebody or to crush somebody? I think this is about crushing this. This is about crushing the conservative government. And I'm sorry. But the liberal government went through this for the last 20 years. Yes, I and agreed then with the your NDP point. With, government I agreed that. with your point with the professor before this. Uh, sorry to her that I disagreed with her on this one, but this is not unique to the conservatives. This has been every, well, it was the Bill Davis with the conservatives, yeah. and then it was liberals with Peterson, and then it was Bob Ray, and then it was Dalton McGuinty, and then it was Kath- Kathleen Wynne, yep. and it was Mike Harris, and like it is every provincial party, it doesn't matter if the communists got, if the communists formed government, they'd have a problem with them because the 28% raise a year they would give out wouldn't be high enough. 
So what do you do? Scott. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great show. You too. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Although I don't necessarily agree, I let you have the last word. Hi, Scott. My name is Mike, and uh, I'm not traditionally uh, pro-union. But in this situation, uh, I don't understand why there wasn't enough time with honest bargaining from both the government and the unions that they couldn't have sat down, recognized the difficulties for these lower paid people and the difficulties they have and the cost of living and come out with an equitable agreement. I don't think the union should have given away their their strike, uh, their right to strike. That's a, that's a right that is they have and they shouldn't bargain that away. And I think the government, if they'd wanted a settlement, could have got a settlement before having used the heavy-handed notwithstanding clause, which I think has backfired on them. And I think it should have backfired on them. I'm not a pro-union guy, but I'm definitely on the union side on this one.